then. Total, total freedom over here. Listen, it's no accident that you rearrange the letters in the word Santa and it equals Satan. Mm -hmm. All right, that I'm here to tell you. Yeah, uh, it's, that's why, you know, it's a Santa worshiping season. It started as a Satan worshiping season. And no. You're listening to Classical Etc., a show from the Memoria Press Podcast Network, where we offer an in-depth look at the philosophy, culture, and heart of the Memoria Press family. Now, here's your host, Shane Saxon. John, Merry Christmas. Hi, Merry Christmas. I love what you've done with the place. <laughs> um, one of the conversations you and I have had quite a bit um, just over the last couple of weeks, and one of the ones that we have at Memoria Press quite a bit, is uses this metaphor of plundering Egyptian gold. Um, so, you know, in one of my favorite books, the Hebrew Old Testament. Um, Good book, yeah. Yeah, the, it's a great book. The, in Exodus chapter 12, um, the Israelites finally get out of their exile of slavery for hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, generations in Egypt. And God tells them to take the gold of Egypt. And that gold ends up being a fulfillment of prophecy from Genesis 15 and on as to how God would bless these people. And so St. Augustine, um, when answering the question that Tertullian asked about what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem, he answered that question by saying, it has everything to do with plundering Egyptian gold. The Christians, what they did in those early ages with pagan myth and pagan ideas and Socrates and Aristotle is they plundered the gold of these myths as a way to build out their understanding of their own faith and their understanding of the world. And it's really kind of a, a pinnacle concept for classical education. We hold theology as the queen of the sciences, and we want to teach everyone how to understand the world Christianly. Um, but we do it by adopting the concept of taxonomy from Aristotle and um, the great literature of the ages. And we, we don't reject pagan learning and intellect um, simply because it's pagan, because we know that the God made it all. And right. so we study it. And that's like a really important concept for us. Uh, I don't know if you, if you, we've talked about this a little bit. We're going to relate it to Christmas. All right. Let's talk about Christmas. First of all, absolutely correct in everything you just said. You could say just with regards to Christianity in general, the Christian faith is by its very nature a fulfillment. I mean, even before I pull in how it responds to Greek paganism or Roman paganism, the whole thing is a response to Old Testament Judaism, right? right? It's built, it's baked into the, it's baked into the faith that this is an answer to questions. This is the, this is the, the climax to a, you know, to a growing story, a growing uh, faith search or journey. And so in just the same way that we can talk about it as the legitimate successor of Judaism, as the New Testament tries to do, the, the questions being brought up or the theological, uh, the theological values such as they are in Roman paganism or in, in, uh, in any other faith still find answers in both Christian theology, but also in Christian tradition. Uh, we can easily extend that to the uh, domestic observances of Christian holidays and Christian festivity as well. Yeah. So when you, you bringing this all the way back around to Christmas in the, you know, so-called Christian uh, Christmas wars or of our culture, where the supremacy of Christ and the importance of Christ in the holiday of Christmas, you have one predominant response from some people, and that is, 
any of these pagan traditions, these Christmas traditions, if we can root them in some kind of paganism, we just need to to wash our hands of them. Right. Yeah. Um, but it seems like there could be a different response. It's actually kind of the response of all classical educators to everything else. And so that's kind of what I wanted to talk with you about is let's talk about Christmas traditions. And instead of just saying they're pagan, let's wash our hands of them. We could instead say, look, they were celebrating this or they were remembering this beautiful thing about Christmas. And since we're Christians, we know we can situate that within our understanding of how the world works. And you've done some research on where different Christmas traditions came from. And I was hoping you can fill us in on that, both the Roman, the German side, perhaps any other kind of history you found on Christmas traditions. So let's start with Rome. I know that Christmas is somewhat related in some people's minds, to the idea of the Saturnalia feast. Right, yeah. Now, there are two, actually. There are two festivals that uh, we can associate in time to the Christmas Christmas tradition. So the big one, the one that people are somewhat familiar with, is Saturnalia, typically, which was a celebration of the god Saturn, which is a weird god by Greco-Roman, uh, Greco-Roman standards because... Saturn in Greek terms was Cronus, who was the old king of the gods, right? He's the dad of Jupiter or yeah. of Zeus. That Zeus or Jupiter overthrew, right? Like it started with Cronus, but then Cronus ended up being a bad king or a bad ruler in Greek mythology. And so Zeus kind of took up the throne himself and threw his father down into Tartarus, right? The closest thing the Greek, uh, Greek myth gets to hell, right? So the fact that in the Roman tradition, suddenly we're going to have a festival very much focused on this guy is bizarre within even pre-Christian classical tradition. Yeah. Is so, that is that pushing back on Greece? Is that kind of a Roman statement of independence or? Uh, good question. You could certainly kind of symbolically say it was. However, it's really more of a, it's more of an expression of how the Romans thought about Saturn himself. Uh, for example, the Temple of Saturn in Rome was the largest temple in the in the Great Forum, right? It was a very substantial, very massive edifice. Uh, you can still see big old chunks of it today. Hmm. Uh, however, the Saturn, in addition to being the earlier king god, right, was also seen as kind of overseeing a golden age of humanity, right? Uh, the Romans thought, well, things aren't super great now, right? Because this is a lesser age, things have degraded. There's been entropy since the mm -hmm. beginning of the universe, right? And so they thought that, well, the earlier age, therefore, must have been better. And yeah. so they associated Cronus, who, in addition to being this earlier king god, was a god of agriculture and a god of the seasons passing. Uh, the Romans sort of conflated that with an earlier golden age associating... Which, which they were celebrating at the feast, right? Precisely, yeah. So in the middle of the winter season, we suddenly get this celebration of... Not this bitter age that humanity has fallen into, analogous to the bitter season of winter, yep. but a reflection on the best season, or in this case, the best age of humanity, the one that theoretically would have been under under Saturn's rule. So there's this distinct sort of liminality to the to the Saturnalian tradition. When you say liminality, you mean like the presence of of like the deity um, in the place of. 
Well, in the sense of there's there's a sort of proximity, a very close proximity between the bad and the good, right? Sure, sure. There's this very fine line between, you could say, the golden age of Saturn that you were celebrating and the bitter age of winter that we're experiencing. Oh, yeah. Or in the very literal sense, the nice warm hearth of the of the Roman home versus the bitter winter right outside the walls. Yeah. Right. Which not to get too ahead of ourselves, but is going to be a theme that you see in every it appears like tradition of Christmas throughout time is yeah. there's a bitter season out there, but let's come together in here. And this is an important thing that I'm going to bring up, especially when with regards to uh, the non-Roman traditions that make their way into Christmas is we can we can make meaningful statements about how any given Christmas tradition came from the Romans who were pagan or came from the Vikings who were pagan. But a lot of these traditions have a lot more to do with the domestic tradition of being indoors and being with yeah. family at a certain time of Uni year. In other words, universal human nature. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> nowadays, you know, we we build snowmen and we put on scarves and we sing Christmas carols and so forth. You know, we wouldn't say that, you know, uh, having mulled wine, you know, at Christmas is a religious observance, right? Even though it's analogous to the Christmas season, it's part of our uh, domestic observation of Christmas. To call it a religious function though would be incorrect and a lot can be said of the of the Saturnalian practices as well or of the German uh, Yule practices yeah so get into that what, what did they do at Saturnalia cool yeah now speaking of the difference between the religious and the domestic there was a pretty long period of Saturnalia it wasn't a day right it was a day of uh, ritual it was a day of religious ceremony just the same way that Christmas is Christmas day right it's one day of religious ceremony. But then the Saturnalian season would follow this day of celebration, right? You'd have one big day where there's a big public sacrifice, a big public ceremony. That would definitely be a fairly straightforward Roman pagan sacrifice, right? But after that, everyone would go home for about a week and just have a party, essentially, at their home. And a lot of the traditions that do come from Saturnalia, in fact, we'll say the entire uh, number of traditions that come from Saturnalia into Christmas really have nothing to do with that religious observation at the beginning of the Saturnalia season. It's all from that at-home domestic kind of familial observation of Saturnalia. Uh, for example, uh, gift giving was a popular uh, a popular uh, activity uh, at home during this uh, Saturnalia feast or during the Saturnalia festivity, but. The specifically the the process of giving white elephant gifts began with the Romans, because um, you weren't supposed to get people like nice things. Yeah. In fact, uh, I believe it was um, I want to say it was Livy. It was a, it was a fairly well known Roman historian who pointed out that if you get your if you get your friend a very expensive gift, that means you don't really know much about them. You don't know what they are sentimentally attached to, and so you default to the most prosaic value you can think of, yeah. monetary value, right? But if you get something that's financially worthless, but has a lot of sentimental value, yeah. or is silly, or is funny, or is, has some you know emotional connection to it, then that means you're a good friend. Yeah, I've right? made this argument to my wife every Christmas, and <laughs> she wants sentimental value and money, and yeah. I, I haven't been able to win that. Mm, well, just, you know, point to the Romans. The Romans <laughs> are going to help you out in this one. Um, in addition, uh, there was typically, they would do a lot of feasting and eating and things, but there was one feast that they would have towards the end of the Saturnalian season where 
and I don't believe it had a proper name, but where the feast would be given to the servants of the household. And when we're talking about ancient Roman uh, culture, we're talking about slavery, right? Yeah. Which is not a fun thing to talk about, right. of course. But within their tradition, there would be this one day where suddenly the slaves become the masters yeah. of the so household. Strange. Yeah. And they would get to say, hey, you there, pointing to the person who owns the house and technically owns them and say, you go get me and, you know, get me some wine. And they'd be, okay, yes, master, and go get wine for the slave, right? And so it would be all the family members the, that would go do all the servant stuff, do all the cooking, do all the, you know, the nitty gritty. And then the uh, the servants would all sit at table and dress and live like kings for a day. Yeah, why Why do you think they did that? What was that trying to achieve or accomplish? It comes back to that whole liminal thing, the idea that we're on this kind of strange space between the good and the bad, this sort of kind of suddenness of transition. There was a lot of, there were a lot of traditions in the Saturnalian season and in most uh, winter uh, festivities throughout the Mediterranean that involved sort of the reversal of roles, right? Where whoever was high would become low, whoever is low would become high. Mm -hmm. uh, because again, this is a period where things are kind of turned on end, right? People's domestic lives are turned on end because they're stuck indoors, right? They can't do what they used to do. And because of their suddenly being in such close quarters, roles change. And this Saturnalian uh, feast of the reversal of roles was a way of sort of promoting that or officializing that strange twisting of which responsibilities fell to whom. Yeah, it's never uh, the best possible example of that, of course, being the God of the universe becoming a baby in a manger. Exactly. Early Christians, again, early Christianity existing almost exclusively within the Roman Empire, immediately saw the kind of obvious kind of connotation of the last becoming first and the first becoming last, having a Christian analog, right? Mm -hmm. And so even though it didn't start as that, it became such a useful symbol or such a useful representation that they were able to incorporate that tradition of a reversal of roles feast in Christmas uh, as both a continuation of this domestic observance by the Romans, but now making it religious, not in a pagan sense, but giving it a Christian religion subtext. The idea of the whole reversal of roles doesn't happen a lot in America, right? Yeah. It's not yeah. like I don't know. I don't think you've given a, a feast for, for your butler or something. Um, not that we have butlers. Uh, we'll work on that. But um, in Europe, it's still fairly common in certain parts of uh, in parts of Europe where uh, you would have what's called the Lord of Misrule is fairly common in, in England, for example. Or in parts of Germany, there was this tradition of appointing a boy bishop where just yeah. some kid like five or six or seven would be appointed the bishop of the town for the day. And they yeah. would be able to, you know, give these edicts and orders and the Lord of Misrule would kind of become the new mayor for a day and just tell his people to go do crazy things like dunk their head in a pool or whatever. And they'd have to say, yes, my Lord, and go do it because it's all about, again, the sort of celebration that leaning into just how, just how topsy-turvy things yeah. can be. And it speaks to, again, that tension of Christmas where the, you have that dark season outside but inside, we're being frivolous. Yeah. And it's just a merriment that hopefully is unbounded in some mm -hmm. ways. And maybe that connects us a little bit to the Germanic tradition and some of the the traditions there that we've adopted into modern-day Christmas tradition. Right, yeah. And uh, an important thing to say here is that while overall Christmas tradition in the, in the Christian tradition does point a lot to Roman antecedents, in our Christian uh, Christmas traditions— uh, in America and in the Anglophone, you know, English-speaking world, largely we're going to be drawing from the Germanic tradition because 
Sure, we do have a Latin-inspired language and so forth, but we are ultimately culturally far kind of closer to what was going on in, you know, medieval Germany than we were in medieval Italy, for example, or medieval Greece. So the Yule tradition, uh, which even nowadays we can sometimes call Christ Christmas Yule or the Yule season, Yuletide, right? Yeah. The Yuletide, precisely. Uh, Yule was a very different tradition in many respects especially its religiosity, because where we can make this kind of fine delineation in Saturnalia and the Roman tradition between this part was pretty obviously religious, this part was pretty obviously not religious, it was just a cultural thing. With Yule, we really just don't know a lot about it, mm. because when we were, when, when uh, the Western world was beginning to incorporate German peoples into themselves, the Germans were Christianizing really quickly, and as a result, kind of uh, jettisoning a lot of their traditions from before. And they didn't really write a lot of these things down the way that the Romans and the Greeks did. And so we do know a decent amount about what they did in terms of their physical practices. We're not super sure about the or, or the reasons behind those practices. What we can say is that the, the large majority of their, of their practices during Yule were domestic. They had to do with what you were doing with your family, the kind of things you would dress in, the kind of things you would eat, and so forth, mm -hmm. right? There was, uh, there's enough reasonable suspicion to say that it was largely a, a celebration of the season far more than it was a celebration of any particular god or goddess. There were certain, uh, certain kind of references to the god Odin, who's the king of the gods in, in, uh, in Germanic paganism. Uh, to being related to to it to Yule in some respect. For example, uh, every every god in Norse mythology has a number of epithets, kind of extra names, and Odin was sometimes called uh, Yulfader or uh, Yule Father or Yulnir, which is the Yule one. Hmm. However, we don't know whether that means that Yule celebrated Odin or if Odin celebrated Yule. Was the Yule celebration for him or was he just someone who? partook in it the same way that humans did, yes. right? Yeah. Uh, we're not totally sure. So essentially you're saying as you plunder the Egyptian gold of the Germanic Christmas yeah. traditions, it's not a case where we're taking these religious traditions and understanding human experience and kind of seeing how Christ um, kind of illuminates what we actually should be experiencing in this in this religious tradition. It's more of a, an expose on human experience. Yes. It's much more that side of it than it is the religious aspect. Yeah. And while the Saturnalian traditions, as they relate to sort of that, again, liminal winter space, uh, can be a little bit more uh, abstract or a little bit more symbolic, it's a lot less symbolic when it comes to the Germans. They weren't very good at, uh, well, I don't mean to put words in their mouths, but they weren't very good at uh, theological abstractions of their practices, right? They were very, they were very down to earth people with respect to how they how they celebrated things. So, for example, one of the one of the chief kind of uh collective celebrations of Yule was the Yule tree or the Yule log. Um and when we think in American terms or in modern terms, you think oh, like the Yule log in England or the Christmas tree pretty much anywhere, right? I had never heard of the Yule log before. Right. Um, so explain a Yule log. That's okay. not a tradition I grew up with. Yeah, it's not a very American tradition. I mean, if you go on like a streaming service some, uh, during Christmas time, sometimes they'll have a Yule log. Oh, like can, the Netflix. Yeah, like. you can just pull up on uh, you can pull up on your uh, screen, which I'm going to go ahead and say is I don't feel is quite like the real thing. But it's a it's an English tradition. You typically well, you would have a dedicated log that you would put in your in your fire during the Christmas season. 
And it would often be of a more aromatic wood. And so it would kind of fill the house with this very warm, cozy yeah. scent. Right. Yeah. Uh, that is a very, very old tradition that originally was not for your own individual fireplace. It was for the entire community in an in a old Germanic village. They would have essentially a whole tree kind of lugged to a certain spot. And then they would kind of chop up one end of it and set it on fire. And as that fire grew and grew, and as that charcoal kind of wasted away, they just keep on pushing the tree further into that spot so that the same tree ended up causing this big old bonfire mm. for the town or for the village over an extended period of time. And so this, what would normally be a personal hearth or the hearth of a family, the hearth of an individual household, ended up becoming this communal hearth where mm. the entire community was participating in the same hearth space, the same place of warmth and safety. Yeah. Which the analogies are pretty obvious in, in terms of the bringing the community together, right. especially yeah. in a in an agricultural situation or a situation where people didn't have the kinds of comforts and ability to warm their spaces like we have today. They had to come together as a community, mm -hmm. um, which is still something that people try to do today yeah. in their Christmas tradition, bringing people together um, to provide food or big meals. Yeah. Uh, nowadays, you know, the the Christmas thing is cozy, right? It's just, oh, it feels good, right? Yeah. It's a sense of community, but it's uh, one thing we have now that they did not have back then was the la the lack of an impending doom on account of the harvest going a certain way, right? As, as grim as it sounds, these were, again, as you said, agricultural communities. If things didn't go well during the non-winter seasons, then the winter season was a really tough time, mm. right? For the average ancient person, for the average pre-modern person. Yeah. And so this period of community was certainly a, a period of camaraderie, a period of sort of thanksgiving for the integrity of their community, but it was also kind of brought on by necessity, yeah. right? It was a celebration of that necessity, basically saying, sure, we kind of need to band together in order to make it through the cold. And when we're talking about Germany, we're talking about real bitter cold, right? Yeah. But instead of it becoming a period of bitterness or sorrow, they basically said, uh, let's, let's, let, you know, let's buy it. Like, let's own it. Like, let's, let's celebrate the fact that we are, we are in the midst of this difficulty. We're using that as a predication for harmony and unity. Yeah. Right? yeah. And that's something that came over into American tradition quite a bit in the early literature. And so if you look at, the most famous Christmas poems. It's uh, Louisa May Alcott, um, mm -hmm. Washington Irving, early settlers who were here facing the, the, the edge of known civilization and, and celebrating the hearth as mm -hmm. that thing that brought them together. I was thinking of James, James Lowell and the vision of Sir Lomful, where he starts this whole Camelot tale by saying first, this is Christmas. We're celebrating Christmas, which, mm -hmm. you know, pulls back on Sir Gawain and, and all these things that you're talking about. Yeah. Um, so aside from the Yule, the Yule log, are there any other traditions? Uh, yes. Uh, again, <laughs> you can do a lot of things with trees. We also have the Christmas tree, right? Uh, another tradition for which we don't fully know the antecedents uh, uh, or where they came from. Uh, we do know, however, that the garlanding of Christmas trees with with ornaments, uh, are typically not like, you know, bits of gold and silver, right? But uh, but uh, uh, oftentimes like baked goods or sugar ornaments, mm. things like that would be put together on a tree. Uh, typically not one that you'd cut down and bring into your home back in, back in ancient times, right? But typically one in proximity to in proximity to where you lived, right? What does that have to do with what does that have to do with their kind of custom? We don't really know. And so while on one hand, we can't necessarily say, you know, 
here's what its important Christian symbolism is. We also can't really say here's some important pagan symbolism to it. That's one of the more mysterious ones. We're not totally sure what's going on that one, to my knowledge. Uh, uh, the, the beauty of decorating Christmas tree, I, I think it is interesting that you that kind of thing, you wouldn't necessarily find that explainable, right? I mean, beauty isn't explainable. It's purely <laughs> ornamental. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's... It's a people want to experience flashing lights. Why is that? <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, sadly, there are no uh, ancient German antecedents for Christmas lights okay. because of certain, you know, technological, technological. Uh, barriers, as you can imagine. You mentioned that there were two festivals that in the Roman tradition we can relate to Christmas Saturnalia. What was the other one? The other Roman tradition that is sort of seasonally analogous to Christmas is uh, what's called the Sol Invictus cult. It's a very scary sounding thing. Um, a lot of kind of modern commentators on Christmas try to say that, well, really, Christmas was a replacement of the Sol Invictus cult. Mm -hmm. Because unlike Saturnalia, which just happened more or less at the same time, it started December 17th, ended right before Christmas. Um, the Sol Invictus celebration was December 25th. Mm -hmm. It was actually Christmas Day, right? However, if you don't mind my doing a little myth busting, I feel this is an important note we have to make. Uh, Christian tradition uh, and Christ, uh, Christian celebration of Christmas, while it was a gradual thing, while again, it's incorporation of both uh, Roman elements, but also its own developing language surrounding the Christmas tradition uh, was more or less constant starting in 34 AD all the way through the present day. Mm. Uh, there, was a, uh, there was a distinct period in early Roman Christianity where they began to finally settle when they wanted to do this celebration. And that ended up being December 25th. Uh, we don't know exactly, again, for a perfect date, which date we ought to say is when they decided, okay, December 25th, that's Christmas, right? What we can say, however, is that the decision was based on a different religious feast, the Feast of the Annunciation, which mm. is when Mary was told, you're going to have a baby, right? right? Right, Which was already very clearly established as March 25th. Well, earlier, uh, we're pretty sure that the first mention of it was in a council in the early 200s, right? And so nine months after March 25th is December 25th. That was the rationale used for deciding that Christmas sure. was on December 25th. So then about 50 years later, the Sol Invictus cult was started. That's when it started, mm. right? It was actually Aurelian, a specific Roman emperor, pre-Christian Roman emperor, who decided that he wanted to in in introduce this new religious festival in celebration of the sun, Sol, okay. right? And so, in fact, those who suggest that the Sol Invictus cult inspired Christmas or inspired its date or inspired anything about it has it in the wrong order, right? Yeah. Uh, the most kind of accurate thing we can say about it uh, would be that the Sol Invictus cult absolutely starts after Christmas. One could theoretically assume, therefore, that the decision to put the Sol Invictus celebration on that day might actually be a re yep. reaction to Christmas, not the other way around. Yeah. That is speculation, to be fair. However, what we isn't speculation is that we can't say, therefore, that December 25th was, oh, the Romans trying to cover up or the Christians trying to uh, replace a pagan holiday with a Christian one. The dates do not work for that. Hmm. John, I've heard of wassailing, but I could not tell you what it is. All right. Uh, well, be careful you don't mean wassail, because that's an entirely different thing. You see, <laughs> wassail was a uh, uh, kind of a mulled wine that you might have during oh. the Christmas season. But wassailing, or wassailing, depending on the pronunciation, would be, uh, would be caroling. Christmas oh. caroling. Yeah. Um, wassailing along. 
Precisely. Yeah. That's an old tradition as well. Uh, the singing of songs and specifically the singing of songs from door to door mm. is an old, 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 old tradition. Uh, going back to the Yule tradition, uh, they were not religious songs necessarily. Uh, they weren't even songs necessarily to begin with. Uh, in fact, sometimes it wasn't that you'd bring a song to a door. It's that you'd bring a scary mask to a door. Actually, the whole Halloween masking up and going door to door started not as a celebration of the autumn season, but as the winter season. Uh, and so that kind of door to door tradition of basically meeting the community, right, incorporating everybody into this process, incorporating, you know, people that you haven't spoken to for a while into an integ integrated community during the winter season where everyone needs to bind together ended up developing and growing and the tradition grew to incorporate something again a little more pleasant like singing instead of just scary masks yeah uh and over time of course as germany was christianized they started specifically choosing christian songs or or religious songs yeah john we talked about a ton of different traditions from the roman side of things from the germanic side of things um i kind of envision you every year on December 25th, getting up, putting on a pristine pair of pajamas, and then standing before the hearth with your children and your wife sitting before you and reading the most dramatic possible version of The Night Before Christmas. Is that accurate? <laughs> uh, that is, well, as soon as I have multiple kids, I'll try to recreate that. But uh, for now, for now, I'm afraid my son is a little too young <laughs> to understand. All right. Uh, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get that started. We'll work on that. Hey, well, thanks for the uh, conversation. Yeah, Shane, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Memoria Press podcast. If you like what you heard and you would like to hear more, please consider subscribing to our YouTube channel, Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever else you get your podcasts. My name is Shane Saxon, and I'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Memoria Press podcast network, providing a classical Christian perspective on the world of education. To learn more about Memoria Press, visit memoriapress.com. To connect with us, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.